0: This is Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls. Today, we start with a focus on outreach efforts that intend to bring some peace and safety to immigrants whose futures have been tangled up in the United States' evolving immigration stance. First, we'll hear the story of Jose Torres, who in the fall of 2017 became the first person in New Orleans to take sanctuary in a church to avoid deportation. Here's our correspondent, Sarah Holtz.
1: I live seven blocks from the canal streetcar. On the walk over to my stop, I pass an old brick church, one of scores of sanctuaries in the city. First Grace Methodist Church has one thing on all the others, though. It's a real life sanctuary to a man named Jose
2: Torres.
1: Jose is a community leader with the Congress of Day Laborers, a group of immigrant workers and families who helped to rebuild the city after Hurricane Katrina. In November of 2017, Jose became the first New Orleanian to take sanctuary in a church to avoid deportation. I met Jose shortly after he moved into First Grace, and we sat around a table in one of the church's classrooms. Jose's English is really good, but his Spanish is poetic. So Rachel Tabor translated for me. Hi, my name is Rachel Tabor. I'm an organizer at the Congress of Day Laborers. As Jose began to tell his story, his eyes softened, and I could tell that this is a story many years in the making.
2: Well, I'm
1: a dad. I'm a head of a family. I have two,
3: you know, little girls who were born here in the United States. Um, my youngest, so she's, she's two years old, and she was born prematurely. And because of that, um, she has a complicated seizure condition. You know, they have those documents. Authorities are aware um, that she has this life-threatening medical condition, but it doesn't matter to them. Well, maybe it doesn't matter to them, but it matters to me because I'm her dad. This is my daughter. These are my girls. This is my life. You know, knowing that you have these beautiful little girls waiting for you at home is what inspires you to get up in the morning and go to work, to keep going no matter what it takes, you know, to make sure your family is moving forward and doing well and is provided for. So I'm a person who has fought every day, day to day, to rebuild this city. We've sweated a lot, we've worked hard, we've invested too much to be told now that we can't remain in this city that we have rebuilt. When I came to the United States, I was only 18 years old. And I came fleeing from so much injustice, um, from rampant crime that is just ravaging the country I was born in. You can't move from city to city the way we do here, you know, just easily, right? With the peace of mind that you'll return home safe there, doing that would risk your life um, because of how much crime there is. Um, And you know, life is so fragile, right? You can die in an instant. So I decided I was going to survive. You know, arriving in the United States, you know, I think of that river, the Rio Grande, and this river is a barrier. It's this barrier between two worlds. I can remember when I crossed that river seeing so many, you know, shoes and, and clothes and T-shirts, you know, strewn about and knowing that each one was one person's dream and not knowing whether they made it here or not.
2: I am a human luchando.
3: I'm a survivor of human trafficking. And what I'm fighting for is my day in court. I never had that chance, and so that's my fight. That's what I'm fighting for here in Sanctuary.
1: In light of the dangers that exist beyond the walls of First Grace, Jose's attitude is cautious, especially after he received word from the authorities about his case. Here's Rachel with an update.
3: We just received notice that... They are not granting the stay at this time, um, but we have hope as as he continues to fight his case, as we continue to organize and involve more people, uh, that this movement can grow.
1: And this collaboration between Jose, Congreso, and the greater community helps to renew Jose's faith for the time being.
2: So
3: the fight continues. Um, You know, I have two lawyers who are supporting me. Um, and it helps a lot knowing that I'm not alone, uh, that so many people are supporting me. So I have hope that one day I will return to my family. We just want to be seen as human beings. And I think that our society has lost sight of that. We need to focus on, um, you know, this fight that we all share.
1: In New Orleans, I'm Sarah Holtz.
0: Seven months after taking sanctuary, Jose Torres won a reprieve from ICE's deportation threat and was able to reunite with his family. He remained an active leader with the Congress of Day Laborers, supporting other community members as they continued to struggle with immigration authorities. Next on Peace Talks Radio, we hear about the variety of compassionate services some organizations are offering to refugees and undocumented immigrants in the U.S. Our Suzanne Kreider spoke with Justin Reamer Thamert, director of the New Mexico Faith Coalition for Immigrant Justice, who recently received the Parliament of the World's Religions Justice Award. Justin also offers some ideas about bringing opposing
4: sides of the immigration debate closer together. Justin, tell us about your job. So I work as the director of the New Mexico Faith Coalition for Immigrant Justice, and we're an organization that overlaps between advocacy for better immigration policy, education with the community about immigration issues, and direct service support for families who are facing crisis, whether that be seeking asylum in the United States, Um, looking for support with a family member in deportation proceedings or in detention. Um, We've also been doing a lot of work with trans women coming out of the Cibola Detention Center about 60 miles west of Albuquerque. And so we have a post-release network that will offer support as they are coming out of detention and on their way to sponsors. You know, there are a number of other ways in which direct service plays out. Um, a court companion program that supports people who are afraid to show up at court or at the police office, Um, a rapid response network that shows up when immigration is present in the community and a number of other efforts to try and raise attention to immigration issues and support families that are impacted.
5: Do you made a choice? You're a smart dude and you could, you know, been a lawyer or a CEO. You chose to be the executive director of a nonprofit. So I'm curious What impacted you as you grew up to make this work choice?
4: I think there have been a number of factors that have played in, Um, both a father who was involved in the sanctuary movement in the 1980s and time that I spent in Latin America from the time I was in middle school. And then also, you know, getting to know people who are impacted by our immigration system has made this very personal. Um, I would say that many of the people who I've worked with prior to my work at the Faith Coalition, as well as currently, um, really lift up how devastating our system is. Um, We've worked with asylum seekers who are in asylum proceedings four years after they came to the United States and asked to begin the process. Um, I think also seeing that so many people have died in immigration custody makes this something that really merits and requires that, you know, as people of faith, as people of conscience, um, we are working towards a world where people can come to a country seeking support and not be in risk of dying in immigration custody.
5: Hmm. You said people of faith and people of conscience, but I think immigration is kind of controversial. And I think some people might say I'm a person of faith, but they don't believe in
4: immigration.
5: What would you say about that?
4: It's an interesting mix. If you look at almost any faith tradition, there is some story of migration. So whether that is Siddhartha, um, you know, venturing outside of a castle and coming into contact with sickness and death, whether it is even looking at the notion that, you know, if Jesus Christ had come down to earth, that is a form of migration his family were asylum seekers. So many of the biblical characters in the Hebrew Bible and the Christian Bible were migrants or refugees or trafficking victims. And so I think looking at any faith tradition, you can find a story of migration and the fact that we are on something of a spiritual journey. And that also means that we need to look at the physical journey that other people are facing.
3: Hmm.
5: A spiritual journey. And it sounds like maybe that was part of your process too. You Do you feel you're on a spiritual journey?
4: Absolutely. I um, was raised Lutheran and was very connected to particularly um, the the way that people of faith in El Salvador had been part of the Salvadoran Civil War and struggle for liberation. And I would say that where I am today, while my Um, spiritual journey is probably wider than just the Christian tradition, I connect into an understanding of how we are living in harmony with all of the sources around us and how the the story of faith is one that is shared between most traditions.
5: Your father was in the sanctuary movement. I'm curious how that impacted you as you're growing up
4: you remember that process? I do. So I was one year old when my father was put on trial with Demetrio Martinez, a reporter who had gone down um, to El Paso to be able to document the story of two Salvadoran women who had come to the U.S. um, after they had been impregnated by soldiers and fled. And so... You know, just recognizing that from the time that I was a child, I could have been separated from my father and he could have been in jail for 45 years for standing up for what his faith told him to do, of how we live with justice in mind um, for our neighbors. In high school, you know, I did a pretty in-depth study about the sanctuary movement and seeing how that tied into my own family's life. And then I would also say that since my sister was adopted from El Salvador, there have been many ways that over the years, when I was studying liberation theology in El Salvador, and when my sister and I went back to El Salvador in 2015, that we were able to understand more of the roots of how our life has been impacted by the sanctuary movement of the 80s and how that continues to have ramifications today. Standing up.
5: That is hard. See, I'm from a generation. I was in the seventh grade when Martin Luther King was assassinated. And then a few months later, Bobby Kennedy was assassinated. And so I learned people who speak up and stand up get shot. And I don't want to say I don't stand up for things, but I'm more nervous about that. What would you say to our listeners who are nervous about standing up?
4: There is an inherent risk to standing up, and I don't think that in my personal journey that is something that I want to paralyze me. So I can understand that there are certainly risks that people have faced in this country and around the world for standing up, and courageous resistance is something that we just learn step by step. You know, standing up when we see a very small act can lead us to standing up when we see something bigger happen, and especially at this moment in time when we're seeing across the globe so much division and so much xenophobia, the cost of not standing up will end up being something that is much more problematic than being willing to take the risk that it bears on our life.
5: This is confusing to me because of the ego and the spiritual journey, okay, and letting go of the ego, and then saying, no, the ego realizes there should be courageous resistance. Why would you say to that?
4: A friend of mine was recently talking to me about sacred activism and sacred um, activism being something that is tying in the understanding, similar to liberation theology, that our lives and our spiritual journey are intertwined. So while I may aspire towards letting go of ego and moving um, into higher connection with source energy, I also am living in the physical plane and want to acknowledge that my neighbors who don't have the same privileges that I do or that have been oppressed historically, part of my spiritual journey is learning how to extend that liberation onto others and stand with others who are struggling for liberation. Justin
5: Reber Thabert, if a listener anywhere in the United States right now um, wants to get involved either in immigrant work or immigrant justice, what would you recommend?
4: I think that there are small organizations and large organizations across the country that are doing work for immigrant justice and that are doing work in other fields. And, you know, really we are seeing over this last year how integral each of these movements are that struggles for Indigenous work overlap with immigration in many ways, whether that's that we're looking at Indigenous people who are living on a border or that there are people who are coming to the United States who are indigenous. You know, I think looking for an organization in one's home community is an important way to to start to get involved. Um, there are national organizations um, like immigrant families belong together that can, you know, help connect someone with efforts in their own community. And Google is our friend in the it way is. that you can find what is happening <laughs> in your own community um, and ways to plug in to similar efforts.
5: Yeah. So it's not just about immigrants because people might think, oh, well, we don't have an immigrant issue here, but it may be indigenous issues.
4: It may be indigenous issues. I mean, many immigrants are coming from Africa and there can be tie-ins to Black Lives Matter because for asylum seekers who are living here in New Mexico in doing a cultural orientation training and having to let them know the risks of being a black man in the United States. I mean, we're talking about intersectional issues. Um, Environmental issues are displacing thousands of people across the globe right now. And so there again, we're seeing the intersection between environmental issues and immigration. Um, All of these issues are overlapping in one way or another. Justin, I'm
5: curious what you would say to a group of people who believe that maybe immigration has a lot of terrorists or people who are going to hurt us or take our jobs. And it might be a large group you're speaking to, or it might be someone at the you know, Thanksgiving dinner table who has a really different view of immigration than you do.
4: What would you say to that person or people? I think one of the places to start is with personal stories that if someone has a connection to someone who is an immigrant, being able to lift up that many of the individuals that we know are humble people. Many times they've come here either because they've opened up the refrigerator and they don't have food that they can give their children or that they have come here because staying in their home country means that their children will be at risk of death. So recognizing, for example, one of the mothers who was detained in El Paso and was released um, when hundreds of migrants were just dumped at a park in El Paso, one of the mothers was talking about how she tried to give a blanket to her child in an immigration detention center and that blanket was taken away from her and she was given a piece of mylar foil to wrap her baby. I think it's important for us to question who is being the terrorist, who is acting in ways that are harmful when a border patrol agent shoots a child 34 times in the back when that child is in Mexico. We've never seen a terrorist come through our southern border. Refugees who have been resettled in this country have not become terrorists. We hear a narrative of people who are rapists and murderers and terrorists, and that is not the reality. So I think first, knowing the facts is helpful. Second, understanding the stories. I mean, we are seeing thousands of Central American migrants coming to the United States, and they're largely people under five feet tall. (laughs) and they're very skinny and they are oftentimes malnourished because of how painful and problematic the journey was for them to, to bring their children to this country. So just looking at someone like that, they don't pose a threat to us. And I think that if those people are people of faith, recognizing that our faith calls us to be kind and extend generosity and hospitality to our neighbors, and particularly to people that we don't know, the people that might be called the stranger in some traditions. It takes a risk to see that a person is a person, rather than a a number or um, a terrorist or a certain box that we try to fill. But one of the most important things that we can start to do is shifting this narrative that is fear-based in our country to one that understands the reality that people are seeking a better life for their child or their family, or seeking a space where they can live justly, because US policy oftentimes has had such a detrimental impact on their own country, be that through war or through trade agreements that rob their ability to have a sustainable life.
5: What's one story you would tell to help people understand how you empathize with immigrants.
4: One of the families that uh, we have worked with within the Faith Coalition um, from actually 2013, um, right when I was about starting at the organization, the father had worked as a police officer in Mexico and he and his um, boss had gone to try and confront a situation that was happening in Mexico and his boss was killed and he was disabled and recognized that he had to flee Mexico with his wife and his children in order to be able to live. Because staying at home, they knew that they would be targeted and they would be killed. And so they came to the U.S. border and they said that they wanted to start the process of seeking asylum. And... You know, their immigration case after five and a half years has not been resolved. They still have not been able to argue their case, and yet they have now established their life here, you know, teaching and being able to have their children understand English. The family all speaks English now. They have become really an integral part of our community, and... I think that shows that when we give the opportunity, when we give the support for a family to be able to make a new life, they can succeed. But it requires that there is an openness to extending that.
0: We'll hear more from Justin Reimer Thamert, director of the New Mexico Faith Coalition for Immigrant Justice in a moment, when Peace Talks Radio continues right after this break. You're listening to Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls today, along with Suzanne Kreider. A little later in the program, Suzanne talks with Bawa Jain about his efforts to bring together leaders from multiple faiths to lead us all to a better world, guided by nonviolent principles of conflict resolution, and also about his efforts to develop more responsible leaders in our world in general. But first, we return to Suzanne's conversation with Justin Reimer Thamert, director of the New Mexico Faith Coalition for Immigrant Justice, about his work, assisting immigrants who are seeking asylum and a better life by coming into the United States.
5: In 2018, you received the Parliament of the World's Religions Justice Award. So first, what is the Parliament? And then second, what is the award?
4: So the Parliament of the World's Religions is an entity that has now been in existence for over 100 years. It was the first um, movement of bringing together Eastern and Western traditions to learn about each other. And over the last couple of decades, there has been a resurgence of the Parliament. And so every two to five years, there has been a gathering in some country of the world where people of faith from any tradition you can imagine have come together to both have bre- breakout groups and discuss what is happening, you know, for LGBTQ people on a spiritual journey. How does autism play in? Um, how can we look at postcolonialism in spiritual traditions and in our world? And then also having plenary sessions where indigenous folk are able to take center ground or where environmental issues are given focus and how that plays into our spiritual traditions. So the parliament is led by people of many different traditions and is a space of coming together and sharing our understanding of working towards um, a compassionate world. The Justice Award is an award that is given to someone who has been involved in social justice issues in their community and striving to make a difference.
5: I've heard it's like the Nobel Peace Prize for justice. Would you agree? I guess you'd agree, but <laughs> yeah, <laughs> how is think that, think that true?
4: I think that it is similar. Um, I know that there are many different um, justice-oriented awards around the world, but this is one that really tries to tie in the, the faith aspect of people who are working from within the context of faith for justice.
5: Justin, what did it mean to you to receive the Parliament of the World's Religions Justice Award in 2018?
4: I was really floored to receive the award. I think it is very humbling to acknowledge and receive a recognition for the work that I've been doing I also feel that it's not something that is just because of the work that I've done. Um, The justice award I feel is integrally tied to the community in which I was raised and the people who I know. And principally I think that belongs to the migrants and the refugees and the asylum seekers who have formed me and who have become my larger family. You know, people who came from Uganda and had to leave a child there in order to seek asylum here in the United States and who languished in immigration detention for a year and a half and then were released and still were in limbo. Um, A US citizen who is now 20 and who had to leave her dream of going to the army so that she could take care of of, of her siblings after her father was deported. Um, A transgender indigenous woman from Nicaragua who came to the United States seeking asylum. Um, Two people who have been living in sanctuary in Albuquerque fighting unjust deportation orders. I mean, I I really feel that the Justice Award does not so much belong to me, Justin, but it belongs to the community that is struggling for justice here in New Mexico.
5: Yes. Justin, you feel this award belongs to everyone I'm curious like when you think of our listeners and maybe they didn't get an award like you did that's a really big deal congratulations what would you say to our listeners how they can award themselves or what would you say to people who are curious about peace but have not gotten a physical award like you have
4: I think that a physical award is simply an acknowledgement of some work that people are doing. And I think one of the important pieces of what we try to do within the Faith Coalition is recognize that we are working together and that everyone brings something to the table. And we can acknowledge each other and the work that we do and also acknowledge that we are striving ourselves for a better world. And that doesn't require a physical manifestation of an award so much as an acknowledgement that um, I am committed to ensuring that the tens of thousands of people in immigration detention are liberated and that we change our immigration system so that asylum seekers and children don't languish in very abusive situations where we are seeing children die from diseases that can easily be cured. Um, So every little piece that we do, is something that merits recognition, whether that's something that we are doing for ourselves or supporting each other in this work.
5: Love that. So they can acknowledge themselves as well as other people. I'm curious how often you acknowledge other people. I try to
4: consistently. (laughs) Really? Um, I, I feel that... You know, the people who are taking risks, particularly people who are coming from the impacted community, whether they be a transgender person, whether they be an immigrant with or without immigration status, they are taking risks to engage in collective liberation. And I think that being able to point that out and say thank you is a simple act, but it it goes a long way.
5: Justin Riemer Thamer,
4: what else do you want to say
5: that you haven't said yet? Mm
4: One of the things that I think is important to bear in mind um, right now is that there are groups that are striving to stand together and support each other in bringing a change. So um, over Christmas um, 2018 through the new year, there was an occupation that started outside of the Tornillo um, detention camp, um, which is just outside of El Paso, Texas and it was organized by a number of folks from across the country, and people from the Red Nation in New Mexico went down and were representing that intersection between Indigenous and immigration issues. Um, There are people from the New Mexico Dream Team heading down there as well, since the occupation decided to continue um, throughout 2019. And it was really powerful to see that in very small acts You know, writing a message on a soccer ball that was kicked over the fence by these unaccompanied minors, a message of hope, a message of strength, a recognition that they are not alone, and being able to throw that back over. Having dozens of people with giant puppets and banners marching around the facility, and at least being able to make a little bit of contact with the kids. Being able to shut down the street for a while with jugs of water tying together how Flint, Michigan, and the Dakota Access Pipeline, and transgender women having to drink out of the back of a toilet in an immigration cell because they're not given clean water, and, you know, children who are dying because they are not getting water inside of immigration detention, all of these issues are connected. And even in a small act of shutting down the road to the Tornillo Detention Center for a couple of hours while the busloads of workers were trying to go in gave us an opportunity to try and show signs to those buses that whistleblowers save lives. That it is the responsibility of people who are working inside of a facility to look at the way that they are engaging and be willing to speak out when they're seeing um, practices that are problematic and harmful. So. I think that's just one example of an action that is taking place and striving to call for a change to our immigration system. And in the meantime, bringing art and bringing an attempt to connect with children and connect with the workers who are involved in the system. You know, At all levels, we need a change.
5: It's so true. I think people get paralyzed because they're not doing something big but what you're saying is small acts really make a difference
4: they do there was a a man in um in new mexico who went into sanctuary in 2017 and he was a refugee from iraq who had faced um you know misdemeanor charges decades ago that resulted in him having to go to immigration court but because he was working for the US Army, he was on base without communication when he was supposed to be in immigration court. And so he was given a deportation order, and for decades that wasn't an issue until the Trump administration started seeking out Iraqis across the country who had active deportation orders and trying to push them out as part of the travel ban. The exchange for taking Iraq off of that travel list was that they would accept back deportees. And so just by bringing a couple hundred people together outside of the ICE office. We ended up closing down the ICE office by having a peaceful protest where he spoke and his family spoke, and other people tying together these issues spoke to the need for us to have one community. There's a lot of strength in those very small acts, and they may seem to not make a substantive difference, but it at least requires that people who are working for our government or people who are in a position of power analyze the way that they are living and the actions that they are taking and the the fact that they are not going to be able to do that with impunity. You can hear more
0: from Justin reamer Thamert in Suzanne's complete interview with him, available to hear at our website, peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com. Now, to hear about a broader initiative to encourage the development of a culture of peace in our world, Suzanne also talked recently with Bawa Jain, the Secretary General of the Millennium World Peace Summit of Religious and Spiritual Leaders that opened at the United Nations in August 2000. Mr. Jain has committed his life to finding ways that the worldwide religious and spiritual communities can work together as interfaith allies with the United Nations on specific peace, poverty, and environmental initiatives. And lately, he's been a key figure in the work of the Center for Responsible Leadership that has held summits to inspire leaders in all fields to step up and uphold nonviolent principles.
6: Our first principle is to go and try and engage in a dialogue. Uh, You just can't condemn or demonize anybody because of what they're doing. All we can do is start to engage with them. And we are doing this because we know there is need for it there is violence there is conflict there is tension so we promote this but now what we are trying to promote is responsible leadership because part of responsible leadership is making decisions based on the future not the present making decisions based on conviction not convenience sometimes it might be convenient you know if some if you get angry you'd like to hit somebody that that is convenient but is that is that what you really should be doing is that going to help resolve it it will have consequences. Any of our actions have consequences. And the third part of our principles of responsible leadership is, uh, is it constructive or destructive? So here, again, with the principle of nonviolence, if you engage in a violent situation, then that is destruction.
5: Mr. Jane, when I'm mad, I'm just mad in the moment. I'm not thinking about the future. So how do you get people thinking about the future and the consequences?
6: i will humbly appeal uh, to all the listeners try one try one thing for this i, I and it has worked with me when you are angry and you are going to do something try and restrain yourself and slowly count up to 10 it is my experience that 90% of the time that state of anger will dissipate will weaken and you will begin to make decisions more consciously and responsibly
5: aha so I count to 10.
6: Very ca- calmly, try and count slowly till 10, thinking that what you are about to say, what impact it will have, what consequences could be. Just try your mind, try and steer it towards that. If I say this, what will be the consequences? What are the ramifications? Because once you uttered those words or committed that action, very difficult to take that back. If there's so much conflict around the world, we need people who are really acting out of conviction. That's why, again, I go back to responsible leadership. And for this reason, one of, one of the motivations is at the end of April, we are doing our summit for responsible leadership. It's called the Responsible Leaders Summit at the United Nations. <clears throat> the website for that is www.dcrl.org. Please visit it, look at it, and see if any of those principles appeal to you. Try and answer these questions for yourself. And then you decide whether you're a responsible leader.
0: We'll hear more from Bawa Jain, the Secretary General of the Millennium World Peace Summit of Religious and Spiritual Leaders, and also a key figure at the Center for Responsible Leadership, when Peace Talks Radio continues right after this short break. You're listening to Peace Talks Radio, the radio series and podcast on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls, here today with series co-founder Suzanne Kreider. We're online at peacetalksradio.com, by the way, with audio and transcripts of every show we've ever done dating back to 2002. Again, that's peacetalksradio.com. Back now for more of Suzanne's interview with Bawa Jain, the Secretary General of the Millennium World Peace Summit of Religious and Spiritual Leaders and key figure at the Center for Responsible Leadership.
6: Peace achieved through violence, in my opinion, first of all, is not sustainable. Why? Because okay, you might quell somebody, quieten them down for a while, but if they are disgruntled, they will rise again. So our focus, which I've actually comes from my tradition, my tradition being a Jain, you know, one of the most prominent Jains of our lifetime was Mahatma Gandhi. And he was educated on the principles of non-violence, ahimsa that we call, from the teachings of Jainism. And we follow the non-violence path in our thinking, in our actions, in our speech. So that's what I have been trying to follow all my life. Some of the initiatives, is uh, I think it was 1998, when I was co-director, founder, when we launched the season for non-violence, commemorating the assassinations of Mahatma Gandhi and Martin Luther King and trying to see if he could educate people around the country here first on what are the principles of non-violence and non-violence uh, civil action. So as uh, you know, propagated by Martin Luther King and then uh, some of the Kingian philosophies. And uh, Martin Luther King, as you know, also first acknowledged that his teacher in that aspect of non-violence conviction was Mahatma Gandhi. So we launched that season for non-violence and that spread very quickly. It was across 115 cities in the country and schools all over and it was very successful. But uh, we need many, many more things of that. Then I, I, my life is constantly engaged in mediating wherever there are zones of conflict. We do quietly what we call religious diplomacy and go and try and mediate and see if we can have a non-violent resolution to the conflicts. Baba
5: Jain, okay, there's a percentage of people who don't believe in any faith tradition. It's kind of increasing. I know it's increasing in the U.S. So what role do those people play who are not really in a faith tradition?
6: I'm not promoting any religion or any faith. What we are talking about is responsible leadership. I have, we've done a lot of work with the religious leaders for the past, uh, all my life literally, but for the last few years, and now that's why we are launching now the Center for Responsible Leadership, that whether you believe or not, there are challenges that each one of us face, irrespective of where we are. So what, what are we going to do to address those things? So what we are doing is reminding people about their responsibilities. You decide what you want to do. But do something. Just don't sit around, twiddle your thumbs. The life has to have a meaning and purpose, you know. And I always, as I say, ask yourself a question. Are you satisfied with the, with the way things are today? Is this the world that you want for your children and the children's children? If not, then get up and do something. So if we have to have uh, collective thinking but individual action. Okay, so, but there
5: are some people who are in a faith and they use their faith as a way to create war. Isn't that true?
6: Unfortunately, that is true. And if you go back to some of our history at the Millennium Summit, uh, His Excellency Kofi and the then Secretary General said it best. And I'm always reminded and guided by that. He said, the problem oftentimes is not with the faith, but the faithful. Take for instance, Uh, Islam okay so much of global terrorism everything we keep attributing to the entire religion of Islam is that fair those are the misguided acts of a few and those people who are committing those heinous crimes in the name of Islam are the biggest enemies of Islam they are not following the true teachings of their religion similarly sometimes you have other radicals and fundamentalists who who use shelter or seek shelter or legitimacy of a religion to perpetrate their heinous crime, then they are the biggest enemies of that religion, of any religion, and no faith in my mind condones those kind of acts. The people who try and use that, they need to be isolated and segregated from our communities, and hopefully, hopefully, uh, we can engage with them and through under engage, you know, help increase their understanding and perhaps transform their thinking, change their hearts.
5: Right. You know, I've talked to school teachers and they've said 92% of all the students are great, but the 8% that are bad kind of inflict it on all the students. So are, do you see that too Is a really small percentage of people who create the violence?
6: May I suggest something, Suzanne? One is do not call them bad. Okay. Nobody is bad. Nobody is bad. There are some circumstances which have, uh, you know, unfortunately made them take certain actions or commit some acts or say something which can be there. And go to the root causes of that and see if you can speak to them at that level. Oftentimes you'll find these people are are at the crossroads of their own life situations. If you can try and understand that and meet them at that crossroad and help them take the right path, you invariably you will see that they will follow that. Yet there might be some people who are absolutely misguided. And that's why I say we must work to isolate those and minimize that. Is My aspiration in that is that one day we do not have any of those misguided people. Uh, it's an aspiration. That's why I say it's an ideal. It's utopian, yes. But I keep working towards that. I said that myself, uh, as a goal. So
5: Mr. Jane, you said you want to engage with these people who are not using the true teachings. How do you engage with them?
6: See, I'll, I'll, let me just say, you know, the motivation for us to do what we are doing is because we know there are challenges, but we know there's urgent need. And we oftentimes work with those people, especially who we do not agree with. That's where you can bring in transformation. So we use influential prominent leaders and then we bring in the people who could learn from that or be helped by those teachers So the mentorship programs and then use those tools for within their own circumstances, issues, things that they have to deal with. So always make that distinction. The people who are using religion to commit these heinous acts of violence or crimes, are the biggest enemies of that religion. Isolate them. Segregate them. Do not let them take legitimacy of that faith, of the sacred faith. That's not what God, our Creator, uh, destined for us.
5: See, this is helpful for our listeners, because sometimes people say things that our listener doesn't believe in. But I'm hearing two different things. I'm hearing, well, isolate them, but I'm also hearing use tools to try to transform them.
6: Absolutely. The The thing is, remember, these people who commit these things, they really, in my, I've met many of them, okay? They really are crying out for help. Reach out to them. Try and get through to the to their core and seeing where they can begin to listen. And once... Believe me, it's my been my experience. Once you can gain a little bit of their trust, they open up. They open up. I've had many people weep with me suddenly when, when we engage with them. But be sincere. When you do that, do not go with any expectation of personal gratification or personal benefits. You have to do this selflessly with a real commitment to transform and help the other that you're trying to do. So be a good listener listen, and I use the words with all my team, is listen with your entire body. The words itself don't tell you enough. Oftentimes it's, it's the subtle shifts in your body and little twitches or movements which can teach you much more than what words will ever tell.
5: So you feel a shift in your body, Bawa. So what does the shift mean or what, what do you do next?
6: You can gauge very well when you are very attentive and focused, to see whether the person is being sincere or not, whether the person is crying out for help or not, whether the person is struggling in in some way. So you have to just be very focused and listen and then respond to what the person might open up to.
5: So you're saying a person will know what to do next. If, If the other person is really struggling or they're really being sincere,
6: well, what do I do next? Uh, be understanding have some compassion and oftentimes uh, you know don't volunteer and try and pronounce judgments just listen listen don't jump to a conclusion or judgment remember oftentimes these actions uh, come unfortunately sometimes because of some hurt and sometimes because of some ego your your ego is being bruised and you react that way so Give them some room. Have some mercy, some forgiveness. Engage them. See how they are willing to acknowledge and transform. It is a very pain, sometimes a very tedious and process. You have to have extreme amount of patience in this. And But the, the, the one principle in this is do not jump to a judgment. Do not start making judgments. Keep engaging. Keep the conversation going. And sometimes just stay, staying in the silence itself, but continue to send out the positive energy, positive attitudes that itself can have an enormous impact.
5: And Papa, at one point you were involved in the World Economic Forum that meets in Davos. Are you all still involved in that?
6: It was in, uh, just after the Millennium Summit, we were asked to come and launch the religious initiative at the World Economic Forum in Davos. And I was very excited with that. And what uh, the, the purpose of launching there was that these are the world's uh, powerhouses, uh, the economic leaders and the political leaders who were assembling there. The missing dimension in that was religion. So we were we brought in the religious dimension and the World Economic Forum continues to engage with the religious leaders and I think you've seen lots of changes ever since that. Remember uh, the custodian of the two holy mosques, King Abdullah, he launched the World Conference on Dialogue. As you know, he, he's remember, what makes it unique is that if, uh, he he's not just the king; he's the custodian of the two holy mosques. 1.8 billion Muslims all aspire to go to the holy mosque, and he's the custodian. That kind of a person in here launching a world conference dialogue with the Holy Father, with the Vatican, with the King of Spain in Madrid—it was remarkable. So lots of things happened after that to engage people of influence and leadership, political leaders, business leaders all over the world on working towards peace and working towards the larger interest of the global community. And today, it's quite common, you know, everywhere in the world, you'll see political leaders or business leaders all engaging in these efforts to foster peace and harmony. And our purpose at the Responsible Leaders Summit is to bring some of those people back together. And uh, and our chairman, His Excellency, uh, Dr. Alisa, the Secretary of the Muslim World League, he's done some heroic things. He's taken such steps as like condemning the Holocaust. A Muslim leader of that stature has never done that. And that's a great step to reach out to building relations between the Muslim and the Jews. That has to be commended. It's those kind of examples that we want to bring out and have people uh, be inspired and hopefully take some actions which are going to work towards fostering peace in our communities.
5: Baba, it seems like you often use like these high level leaders, and I'm curious, how come you're not using like local leaders, like soudas and local rabbis and chiefs?
6: All the time we do that, but remember, uh, if I'll tell you in my experience, change in the world has come from positions of authority and influence, and if the you know the higher the level of a leader, the larger their following and outreach, as a general principle. For instance, if you if if you can if we can get Holy Father Pope Francis, God bless him, I think he's a living saint. If you can get him to make some statements, I dare say, you know, not just the Catholics but all Christians, almost one and a half billion to two billion people will listen. Tell me who else has that kind of an outreach. Similarly, with the high-level leaders on the other side, you do that, and once the leader has made those statements, the local leaders invariably also want to follow in that. So we we try and balance out by getting some of the high-level leaders and then getting some local leaders and seeing how those words or those commitments can be implemented at a local level. We constantly try and engage in that.
5: Mr. Jane, I was really lucky. I think it was around 2008, I got to hear the Dalgulama speak at a conference in the United States. And um, he said something very interesting. He said, you know, faith leaders have not brought peace. We've tried, but we haven't brought peace. And he said something like, we need to look at scientists to help bring peace. What's your response to that idea?
6: Our, what our endeavor is to bring leaders of every sector together to work for peace. Don't leave anybody out of that process. And you think if one sector alone can achieve a sustain, sustainable lasting peace, Not possible. The goal has to be to engage everybody, every stakeholder should be engaged. And we must listen to all the voices. Otherwise if somebody is left out, they will not be very happy. So why only just scientists? His Holiness at least, you know, expanded. That was very good at that time. Okay, don't just listen to the religious leaders or the politicians. Get the scientists involved. I'm going a step further and saying engage leaders from every sector. And then let's see if we can work together, get them to work together.
5: Mr. Jane, talk about the Gandhi King Award.
6: Yes, uh, you know, it was during the season for nonviolence. We said, how can we have people within our own communities who've championed the cause of nonviolence be recognized? So we launched the Gandhi King Awards for nonviolence. And the first recipient of that was a UN Secretary General at that time, Kofi Annan, if you know. And then after that, we've given it to President Mandela. Now, I don't have to explain why we gave it to President Mandela. You know his life and what he did. After that, uh, Dame Jane Goodall, to me, she is like the Gandhi of the animal world. We gave her the award. And then, you know, we gave it to uh, the hugging saint, Mata Amritananda Mai.
5: Oh, yeah, Amma.
6: Amma, you know her, very good.
5: Yes, I, I, have, I have been hugged.
6: Oh, you're blessed then. I, Me too, I've been hugged a few times. <laughs> so we continue that, and now we'll be, uh, so to say, resurrecting it. And we're looking for people, especially, you know, if there's so much conflict around the world, we need people who are really acting out of conviction. You know,
5: Mr. Jane, some people say that peace is not really possible, that humans will always be in conflict, what do you think?
6: You want my an honest answer? Yes. Okay. Uh, you know, it's an oxymoron. There will never be absolute peace. But what we can aspire towards is that while there might be those inner conflicts or external conflicts, we can aspire towards trying to resolve them. And if we cannot resolve them, we can agree to disagree. But do not go and destroy or kill each other because you have disagreements.
5: Mr. Jane, this has been so helpful. Last question, what have you not said that you want to say?
6: That we are at a very critical time in history. If you look around today, there's so much that is uh, dividing us. Our politics has become so polarized. And I think we have to restore civility to the public discourse. And people with some kind of rationale, some kind of reason, take some responsible actions that's why we're calling for the responsible leaders summit and you can look up some of the principles some of what we are trying to do at the www.dcrl.org and help us identify those people who in your mind you think are those responsible leaders we want to bring them together and hopefully through this have the ripple effect and multiplication that maybe in 10 20 years these principles becomes part of our DNA that we don't have to go and try and remind anybody, we naturally start conducting ourselves through caring for the other, making decisions of the future, making decisions out of conviction, not just convenience, and making sure that they are constructive, not destructive.
0: Bawa Jain is Secretary General of the Millennium World Peace Summit of Religious and Spiritual Leaders at the United Nations. He's also a key figure at the Center for Responsible Leadership. You can hear Suzanne's complete interview with him, along with this entire episode again, at our website, peacetalksradio.com. Also there, transcripts, pictures, more links and resources, all at peacetalksradio.com. All of our previous shows going back to 2002 are there, as is a button that you can click on to support our nonprofit efforts with a donation. We thank donors like George and Sherry Coinas, Betsy Christensen, in honor of her late parents, John and Audrey, Thanks too to KUNM at the University of New Mexico, to the Albuquerque Community Foundation Tides Fund. Nola Dave Moses is our executive director. Ali Adelman composed and performs our theme music. For Suzanne Kreider and Sarah Holtz, I'm Paul Ingalls. Thanks for listening to and for supporting Peace Talks Radio.